Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the HypnoDojo, a place of learning for practitioners and students of hypnotherapy. Get your black belts in all things hypnotherapy as we whip into shape your mindset, mastery, and marketing. Relax, enjoy, learn. Here's your sensei, Linda Campbell. Hi, and welcome to the Hypno Dojo. As the lovely gentleman said, this is Linda Campbell. I am a clinical counseling hypnotherapist, director of the Horizon Center School of Hypnotherapy, and um, the founder of the, oh my gosh, we have a big long name, the Canadian Association of Counseling Hypnotherapists and Educators, CASH. And today I want to talk about fear. Anxiety is probably one of the major things that clients will come to see us about. And, of course, when I talk about fear, it may be anxiety or panic attack, that kind of thing. But what I'm going to talk about in this session also uh, applies to phobias, worrying, doing that what-if thinking. So it's any type of fear that your client might present with. Now, ultimately, the number one strategy for addressing any kind of fear is to identify the initial sensitizing event, the ISE, the event that is responsible for the person having developed the fear in the first place. So a lot of old-timey hypnotists are basically working at suggesting away symptoms. So if somebody has a fear of flying, they put them in the chair and say, you get onto a plane easily, you're calm and relaxed when you fly, you feel comfortable in the air, et cetera, et cetera. Or if they have a fear of driving, you feel comfortable on the road, you drive with confidence and ease, et cetera, et cetera. And in my way of thinking, this is not effective for a couple of reasons. First off, if the client is in your chair listening, whatever they're thinking, and most people are listening when they're in hypnosis unless they're super deep, whatever they're thinking is being taken into their subconscious just like a hypnotic suggestion. So if you've got a person who's afraid of flying and you're saying, you do great on airplanes, you're calm and relaxed on airplanes, and they're in their head thinking, no, I'm not. I suck on airplanes. Airplanes are terrifying. Whatever they're saying is being taken into their subconscious, just like a hypnotic suggestion, and wiping out the suggestions that you're giving them. The other problem with taking a symptomatic approach is there may very well be some good reason on a subconscious level for maintaining the fear. So, for example, a person who's got a phobia of dogs because they got bit once when they were little, the subconscious is assuming because of that previous experience that dogs pose a threat. So it thinks that the phobia is necessary. It's a way to keep myself vigilant so I don't end up getting injured again. If you try to suggest a way that this person is going to be comfortable around dogs, go ahead, pet a dog, you're fine, and the subconscious thinks, no, 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 dogs are threatening, You're not going to get past the subconscious. You're not stronger than the client's subconscious mind. It will override you if it thinks that following the suggestions you're giving could cause some kind of damage or harm. So we want to figure out, and this can sometimes be done in a good consultation by asking good questions, but it certainly can be done in hypnosis. We need to figure out where the person developed the fear in the first place. We are only born with two fears. We have a fear of falling and a fear of heights when we come into this world. Everything else is learned along the way. 
And we don't have phobias when we're born. There's a difference between fears and phobias. We have no phobias and no anxiety. You know, a baby doesn't wake up in the middle of the night and think, you know, well, I wonder what's going to happen if, you know, what's going to happen if I'm hungry and nobody comes to feed me? What would happen if both my parents died and I just laid here in my crib forever? Babies aren't thinking those thoughts. I mean, we don't really know what thoughts a baby is thinking, but chances are a baby's not thinking those thoughts. So we're learning our fears somewhere along the way. And so what we want to do in hypnosis is identify where this person has learned to become afraid of something. And this can be done with techniques uh, such as regression, affect bridge, getting the person to focus on the feeling they experience when they think of the feared item, and then have then trace back where was the first time you ever felt that feeling. Uh, you could also do parts therapy, talk to the part of yourself that's afraid of, whatever the client's afraid of, get some information from the part, find out where the fear comes from. And there's some things that we can listen for in our conversations with the client as well as during uh, doing hypnosis around fear. For example, we want to look for modeling. Um, is there a gene for the phobia your client has? Every now and then I have a client who says, you know, I've got this fear of dogs and I think it's genetic because my dad was terrified of dogs. Or I have panic attacks and I think it's genetic because my mom used to suffer from panic attacks. Now, there very well may be a um, gene for panic or fear or what have you, um, but if you grow up around somebody who you see as an authority, you see as a teacher, somebody whose opinion you believe, and they're constantly saying dogs are threatening or you know, you're going to die in a vehicle, <laughs> then chances are you've picked that up and taken it into your subconscious just because this is a person whose opinion you agree with or you believe. Um, I have a client who's got a fear of kidnapping and a fear of men. And she was concerned initially that maybe she'd had some kind of trauma that she had repressed early on in her life. But when we were talking about where this could possibly had come from, she remembered her mother telling her that if a stranger ever holds a gun on you and tries to drag you into a car, run away. Because even if you get shot, being shot would be... Uh, less painful <laughs> than what the person would do to you if he got you in the vehicle. So there's something to tell your little kid. A little kid is believing what you say. You're the parent. You know everything. They don't know you don't know everything. If you're telling them that a man could do something to you that's worse than being shot, <laughs> oh, my God, what are men capable of doing, right? So we're listening for modeling. Did the parents have any kind of fears or phobias or anxiety? Would the child have been exposed to those things growing up? Would they have heard the parent talk about them? Uh, you're listening for what kind of messaging your client may have picked up directly by, or by hearing from the person, this is a frightening thing, or indirectly, even just seeing how a parent behaves. The parent never has to say, I'm afraid of dogs. All they have to do is kind of jump or get a bit uncomfortable when a dog walks past them in a park, and the kid's going to pick that up. So you're listening for modeling. Um, when it comes to anxiety and what-if thinking, you, you might also want to listen for an unpredictable person in that client's past. So, for example, if they grew up with a, a client or, a, sorry, a parent who had a tendency to drink too much and then come home and, you know, get angry or chuck stuff around, or they had a parent who had some mental illness and they had unpredictable behavior as a result, 
or if they even just had a one-time event, you know, everything was going along smoothly and then something terrible happened, what that can lead to is the client learning to be vigilant. If they've got to be on guard because somebody's behavior can change at any given moment, they're unpredictable, then they'll pick up vigilance. If they, you know, were humming along just nicely and then something terrible happened out of the blue, the subconscious might expect that to happen again, and now you've got a client who's always looking over their shoulders. And so you're looking for modeling, you're looking for an unpredictable person or an unpredictable event, and obviously any kind of experience that could have created fear, um, you know, was something that occurred, and it could be a one-time thing or an ongoing situation where the client learned to be cautious. So that's ultimately what we're going to do is identify the initial sensitizing event and then work with the client to resolve it. I never take my clients back to relive anything. Uh, If a client knows they're going to go back to relive something, they may not even go into hypnosis because the whole thing, hypnosis plus add on to that, re-experiencing something that was traumatic the first time around may just be too daunting for the client to even be able to go into hypnosis. So I don't take people back to relive anything. It's more about helping them to understand how something impacted on them. What did they come to learn about themselves, about the world, about other people as a result of that event? And how can I step in and reframe how they perceive that event? Um, The first time you get bit by a dog, (laughs) your thought is dogs are threatening, never get near a dog again. And so I want to intervene on the level of belief. Can I help that client to change their belief? That dog may have been threatening, but that doesn't necessarily mean all dogs are. That they're able to discern the difference between safe and unsafe. That they can protect themselves and defend themselves if need be, but they don't need to be constantly anticipating. So I'm looking for the ISE. I'm looking at how the person came to develop a a fear belief based on that experience, and then I'm reframing the belief. And I want to share um, a hypnotic argument that I use often with my clients in hypnosis. So it sounds a little something like this. Now, when a client has fear, typically they have a belief that something terrible is going to happen, and so therefore they have to protect themselves or be on guard so that they can keep themselves safe. And there's a lot of different strategies that a client might use. They might be vigilant, have a startle response, have anxiety, have panic. This can also lead to things like not sleeping well, being a really light sleeper, having tension in the body because they're always tight, they're always vigilant. Uh, another strategy to protect against fear might be to be avoidant. If I don't do anything or go anywhere where my fear might be triggered, I'm safe. Yay. (laughs) But this is, I think, where people sometimes develop agoraphobia in the long run. Because when a person has anxiety or fear, sometimes the fear starts to become about when is the next time I'm going to experience this fear. So, again, somebody can be humming along really nicely, life is going smooth, and then all of a sudden, for some reason, they have their first panic attack while they're sitting in a red light, at a red light in their car. So now the subconscious is like, oh, shoot, maybe I better not drive because I could have another panic attack next time I'm in a vehicle. Oh, and I was at a red light, so maybe I should avoid traffic, or maybe the color red brought on my panic. Okay, so I'm not going to get around anything red. I won't go in a vehicle, and I won't be in a vehicle with somebody else who's driving because I don't want to re-experience panic. 
And so we'll start shutting down things that um, the subconscious links as being potentially uh, causing panic, even though they may not be causing panic. When two things happen in close proximity, the subconscious assumes that they're linked. So if I have a panic attack in a vehicle, it must be the vehicle. It must be driving. Therefore, natural conclusion, avoid driving, avoid a vehicle. So that's avoidance. Then there's worry, Um, all the what-if thinking. What if this happens? What if that happens? All these future projections coming up with worst-case scenarios. This is another way of protecting oneself. If I can think ahead to all the things that could potentially go wrong, then I can be ready for them when they happen. But there are some flaws to this thinking. First off, so many of the things we imagine never actually occur. I could spend the entire day coming up with all kinds of different scenarios for things that could happen by the end of the day. But really, I can only live one day, right? I can't live all of those scenarios in one day. So I can come up with way more things that would potentially happen than things that will actually happen. Also, worrying about something doesn't necessarily make it any easier to deal with. Uh, I could spend the whole day worrying about my boyfriend breaking up with me. But if he did break up with me, would I then be able to say, oh, I'm okay, I worried about this a lot, so I'm totally fine? Of course not. I'd still have to deal with whatever I had to deal with. I wouldn't have saved myself any grief. I would have actually just compounded it because not only would I have to experience the thing in real life, but I also would have experienced the thing in my imagination over and over and over. So it's like I've been broken up with 150 times, not just once. The other problem with this is, what if he never broke up with me? I would have spent all of that time worrying off somewhere in my imagination, imagining this future scenario, and in doing so, I would have missed out what was actually taking place. I would have sacrificed sacrificed my what is, my current moments, for a bunch of what is, what if, sorry, a bunch of future worst-case scenario moments. And so worry doesn't really protect us, It just interferes with our joy of life and creates discomfort and means that we're not in the present moment. Now, another strategy that clients might develop for dealing with their fear or their anxiety is ritualistic behavior. So oftentimes we see this with clients who have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So they generally have a thought that something bad is going to happen, and my way of keeping myself safe, making sure nothing bad happens, is to engage in some type of ritualistic behavior. So if all of the papers on my desk are organized in an exact you know, 90-degree angle to the desk itself, if all of my pens are organized so they're all the same height, if my hands are you know, satisfactorily washed, cleaning them for an hour, then nothing bad can happen. There's almost this kind of wishful, like fantasy-like thinking that I have some control over what goes on out there in the world because I'm controlling these things that are immediately in front of me. So when people feel that there's an area that, of their life that is out of control, they will try to compensate by taking control somewhere else. And so one way of dealing with fear, which feels very out of control, it's something, you know, I have no control over what might happen, so I'm scared, well, then I will control these behaviors, I'll control these items on my desk, and now I can feel okay. So 
these are the strategies. So I'll sometimes say to the client, you know, when somebody is experiencing fear, they have a feeling something bad is going to happen, and they choose these different strategies. And I'll explain the strategies a little bit, particularly the ones that are pertinent to the client. And then I'll talk about how these strategies don't work. I mean, avoiding something just means you're having a life that's no fun. There's no richness. There's no fullness. You're basically just, you know, trying to get through the day. But there's no pleasure or enjoyment because you're not doing anything. Uh, Worry and vigilance don't really help. They just create discomfort. They interfere, again, with your joy of life. They stop you from being present. They keep you in your head instead of in your body and experiencing the pleasurable parts of your life. And, of course, rituals don't help either because no amount of organizing the items on my desk is going to keep people from dying. No amount of avoiding the cracks on the sidewalk is going to keep all my family members healthy. So ritual X doesn't solve problem Y. So then what does help? So what I'm doing here is I'm creating a hypnotic argument to talk the client out of using the strategy that they've been using, right? The subconscious is primarily protective. It wants to help out. However, it is illogical. So on a subconscious level, we will come up with strategies to help us deal with our fear or anxiety that the subconscious thinks is working. Well, if I organize all these things on my desk, nothing bad will happen in the world. If I'm thinking ahead to all the worst-case scenarios, I can be ready for them. If I'm avoiding situations that create panic for me, I don't have to feel panic. So the subconscious thinks that it's using strategies that are helping, and so I'm talking to the subconscious and explaining that these strategies actually aren't helping. They're actually just making the person feel miserable and causing more distress for them. And so what does help? Now here's where I'm going to present different options to the subconscious mind. One thing that helps us to deal with fear is to reframe how we look at experiences. So it is not the events that occur in our lives that cause our suffering. That's important to know. It's not the events that cause our suffering. And this can sometimes be a bit of a huh to the clients because they might be thinking, well, if my husband wasn't such an asshole, then blah, 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 blah. Or if the economy were better or if my parents had given me more skills or, you know, they're blaming things outside of themselves for all of their struggles. But it's not the events. It's not the things outside of ourselves that cause the struggle. What causes the struggle is the voice inside our heads, what we're saying about those events. And this is actually good news because where we may not always have control over the external events, we do have control over our thoughts. So let me give an example. Uh, Three people lose a job. Person number one says, well, this sucks. I'm going to end up on the street. I'm not going to have any money to afford anything. I'm a loser. How could I let this happen to me? This is the worst thing that's ever happened in my life. Okay. That's one way of looking at it. That's one kind of series of thoughts. And that series of thoughts is going to make the person feel pretty defeated and deflated and not have a whole lot of energy and enthusiasm or drive to change the situation. Person two loses a job, but they think, okay, this isn't ideal, but I'm going to trust that if I do some networking, if I put the word out, if I do some research, I'll find something eventually. I just need to buckle down and do some work on this. Okay. Now, with that type of thinking, this person's going to have more drive, more ambition, more motivation to change the situation. Person three, same event, loses a job, 
but they take a completely different attitude. They say, okay, maybe this is something happening as a blessing in disguise. Maybe this is the universe doing this for me instead of to me. Maybe I'll find work in an area that I didn't know I had skill in. Maybe I'll develop some new talents. Maybe I'll meet some interesting people. Maybe I'll travel. Maybe I'll make more money. Maybe this is actually a wonderful thing happening for me, moving me out of a situation that was stifling where I wasn't growing and moving me into something far more expansive and meaningful. Now, With that type of thinking, the person's going to have excitement and enthusiasm about their situation. They're going to have more more motivation to change things because the thoughts that we think influence what's going on for us emotionally and physically as well. So it's not about denying something. None of these people said, oh, I didn't lose a job. Everything's fine. It's not about lying to yourself. But we have a way that we're used to thinking. And again, this may be something that was modeled to us. You know, I've worked with a lot of clients who heard things growing up like, you know, just as soon as something good, you know, just as soon as you think things are going good, something bad could happen. So don't get too ahead of yourself here. And maybe they've had that experience. You know, dad was doing really well, and then out of the blue, he got fired. The economy took a dive, and dad lost their job. So things were going well, and then something bad happened. So, I get a lot of clients who are used to thinking a certain way, and so sometimes I'm digging around to find out where did that way of thinking come from? Did you learn it from somebody else? Was there an experience that caused you to think that way? Because you have choice as to how you're thinking. And so I'll encourage the client to find a different perspective, to step back from a situation instead of just thinking the regular default type of thought that they usually think, step back from it, walk around it, (laughs) look at it from some different angles, and find a different approach to this event, to this situation. Find a different perspective. Now, what we're doing here is not just positive thinking woo-woo garbage. It actually changes the form and structure of the brain. So you may be familiar with the term neuroplasticity. It used to be believed that our brain developed to a certain point and then stopped developing. But what we now know is that the brain continues to develop, that we can consciously, purposefully develop sections of the brain. In fact, even sections of the brain that have been damaged, their function can be taken over by another section of the brain. So our brain is plastic. It continues to grow and to develop. So... We may have a default way of thinking. I'm used to thinking anxiously. I'm used to doing the what of thinking. I'm used to worrying. But I can train myself. I can condition myself to take a different perspective. Instead of, oh, I lost the job. I'm a loser. I'm never going to find anything to do now. I'm going to be out on the street. We can condition ourselves to think about it differently. This may not be ideal, but I'm going to trust that I have skills. And when I put myself out there and talk to people and do some research, I'll find something. When we challenge ourselves to think differently, we're actually building a new neural pathway in our brain for that new way of thinking. And so again, this is science. It's not just woo-woo. It's science. You're changing the form, the structure, and thereby the functioning of your brain. And the more you do it, the more that new neural pathway becomes established until eventually it becomes the default way of thinking. And so by explaining to your clients that it's not the events that cause the suffering but their interpretation of the events, 
and they can step in and change their perspective, find a better, warmer, more comfortable feeling thought, and that the more they practice with this, the more it becomes imprinted in their in their brain how to think that way, and eventually it becomes a new neural pathway for thinking more positively. Reframing does way more for us than worrying does, right? Worry doesn't actually help you solve a problem, but finding a different perspective can help you to feel better. Now, the second thing that helps with anxiety, with fear, is trust. Trusting life, trusting self, trusting your resourcefulness. So I can't put a client in the chair and say, you're safe. Everything is going to go swimmingly from here. Everything is going to be smooth and easy. I have no magic crystal ball. I cannot look into the future for them and guarantee them that all the hard stuff is behind them now. And if I tried to say that to a client in hypnosis, again, they hear me and they would probably be thinking, well, how do you know that? So what I work on here is building their belief in their capacity to handle whatever might arise and that if there's ever something that they're unsure of how to deal with, that they at least are resourceful enough to reach out and get help, support, advice, find somebody who's been there, done that, somebody whose experience or knowledge they can take advantage of. And you can make that argument with pretty good certainty because the client has reached out to you, so they clearly know how to reach out. And so that sounds a little bit like nobody has a magic crystal ball we can look into to determine how life is going to unfold. I can't tell you things will always be smooth and easy from here forward. If I tried to tell you that, you would probably wonder, how do you know that? But I can tell you with absolute certainty that no matter what happens in your life, you'll be able to handle it to the best of your ability in the moment. And if there's ever something that you're unsure of how to handle, you can reach out, get help, support, advice, information. We live in this wonderful time where we are just a few clicks of a mouse away from any information we could ever need. Anything you could imagine going through, somebody has already been through it. And they've got the resources, the information, the support network, the uh, experience in order to to be able to help you through it. So you don't need to know how to handle everything that's going to come up. You just need to know how to reach out. And you've already proven that you're capable of doing that because you're here. So that's part of the argument. So what I'm working with on people is kind of three parts. I'm helping uncover the ISE so that we can figure out where the fear actually came from. I may be doing that in hypnosis or outside of hypnosis. And to summarize, I'm looking for modeling. I'm looking for experiences that impacted on the person. I'm looking for unpredictable person that created fear for them or anxiety. In the meantime, I'm also talking them out of the old strategies that they were using of being vigilant, being avoidant, worrying and doing any ritualistic behavior if in fact that was their pattern and I'm talking them into being able to reframe their perspective and to be able to trust themselves to handle what might occur and to be able to trust sort of the process of life that everything is happening exactly the way it's meant to. So I hope that gives you some ideas as to how to deal with fear and again with some modifications this can be applied to anxiety panic attacks phobias what if thinking worrying all of that good stuff so i will be back next week and 
I've got an interesting topic for you this week, and this came out of uh, conversations with one of my classes, and I'd never thought of this before. This is brand new material. So as a little teaser, next week we're going to talk about the therapy beyond the therapy. What is it your client really needs when they come to see you for hypnosis, and how can you provide that even before you do a hypnosis session? That's going to be next time. And just a brief little plug, I do offer hypnotherapy training. I offer it in person in Victoria, B.C., and my next class in Victoria is starting in March. The classes run one weekend a month uh, for about a year, and then you can apply for certification through several governing bodies. I also have reformatted my in-person course. I was never really super happy with how my in-person, or sorry, my online course, how my online course was running. Uh, But I have discovered a way of doing my online course so that instead of you working through the material on your own at your own pace and never really having much interaction with classmates or with myself, we will be meeting three evenings a month for about four hours each time face-to-face Um, in an online classroom so that you can see your classmates, have conversations, even move off into breakout rooms to do practice, to do discussions, that sort of thing. So I'm really excited to relaunch the online course because it's just as interactive as my in-person class is. And to me, that's what it's really all about. It's about connecting with other people, sharing experiences, practicing together, uh, getting a review on your practice so that you're not just trying to learn this skill on your own without any support. The next interactive online course starts in April. So if you're interested in finding out more about the training, get in touch with me. My contact information is here on Blog Talk Radio, or you can contact me at info at horizoncenterhypnotherapy.com. Thank you so much for listening, and tune in again next week. Okay, take one. <laughs> with corrections with Campbell. With Campbell. Campbell. The, the. Okay. Get your black belt in all things hypnotherapy and leather blood. <laughs>